In law, a joinder is the joining of two or more legal issues together. Procedurally, a joinder allows multiple issues to be heard in one hearing or trial and occurs if the issues or parties involved overlap sufficiently to make the process more efficient or fairer. That helps courts avoid hearing the same facts multiple times or seeing the same parties return to court separately for each of their legal disputes. The term is also used in the realm of contracts to describe the joining of new parties to an existing agreement. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Criminal procedure. Joinder in criminal law refers to the inclusion of additional counts or additional defendants on an indictment. In English law, charges for any offense may be joined in the same indictment if those charges are founded on the same facts or form or are a part of a series of offenses of the same or a similar nature. A number of defendants may be joined in the same indictment even if no single count applies to all of them if the counts are sufficiently linked. The judge retains the option to order separate trials. Civil procedure. Joinder in civil law falls under two categories, joinder of claims and joinder of parties. Joinder of claims. Joinder of claims refers to bringing several legal claims against the same party together. In U.S. federal law, joinder of claims is governed by Rule 18 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. These rules allow claimants to consolidate all claims that they have against an individual who is already a party to the case. Claimants may bring new claims even if these new claims are not related to the claims already stated. For example, a plaintiff suing someone for breach of contract may also sue the same person for assault. The claims may be unrelated, but they may be joined if the plaintiff desires. Joinder of claims requires that the court have jurisdiction over the subject matter of each of the new claims, and that joinder of claims is never compulsory. A party who sues for breach of contract can bring his suit for assault at a later date if he chooses. However, if the claims are related to the same set of facts, the plaintiff may be barred from bringing claims later by the doctrine of res judicata, for example if a plaintiff sues for assault and the case is concluded, he may not later sue for battery regarding the same occurrence. Joinder of parties. Joinder of parties also falls into two categories, permissive joinder and compulsory joinder. Federal Rule of Civil Procedure No. 20 addresses permissive joinder. Permissive joinder allows multiple plaintiffs to join in an action if each of their claims arise from the same transaction or occurrence, and if there is a common question of law or fact relating to all plaintiffs' claims. For example, Several landowners may join together in suing a factory for environmental runoff onto their property. Permissive joinder is also appropriate to join multiple defendants, as long as the same considerations as for joining multiple plaintiffs are met. This often occurs in lawsuits regarding faulty products. The plaintiff will sue the manufacturer of the final product and the manufacturers of any constituent parts. The court must have personal jurisdiction over every defendant joined in the action. Compulsory joinder is governed by Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 19 which makes it mandatory that some parties be joined. Parties that must be joined are those necessary and indispensable to the litigation. The rule includes several reasons why this might be true, including if that party has an interest in the dispute that they will be unable to protect if they are not joined. For example, if three parties each lay claim to a piece of property and the first two sue each other, the third will not be able to protect his, alleged, interest in the property if he is not joined. Another circumstance is when a party might end up with inconsistent obligations, for example he may be required by two different courts to grant two different parties exclusive rights to the same piece of property. 
this is avoided by joining the parties in one lawsuit. However, while necessary parties must be joined if that joinder is possible, the litigation will continue without them if joinder is impossible, for example, if the court does not have jurisdiction over the party. By contrast, if indispensable parties cannot be joined, the litigation cannot go forward. Courts have some discretion in determining what parties are indispensable, though the federal rules provide some guidelines. Timing. Rules 18 and 20 have different effects depending on when they are invoked. Joinder may occur as part of an original pleading. There is a discretionary period after the initial filing, during which original pleadings may be amended as a matter of course. Parties or claims or both may be joined during this time. However, if the time for modifying the pleadings has passed, the pleading can be amended with the permission of the opposing party or the judge, though this permission is frequently granted. Rule 15 describes the process for amending a claim. Under Rule 42 of Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, the court, if actions involve a common question of law or fact, may join any or all issues, consolidate the actions or issue any other orders to avoid unnecessary cost or delay. The court may also order a separate trial of one or more separate issues or claims for convenience, to avoid prejudice, or to expedite or improve the economy. Contract Law Joinder agreements are commonly used in mergers and acquisitions to bind individual shareholders to the terms of an existing merger agreement or shareholder agreement, and in trust practice to bind a donor to the terms and conditions of the trust. An indispensable party, also called a required party, necessary party, or necessary and indispensable party, is a party in a lawsuit whose participation is required for jurisdiction or the purpose of rendering a judgment. In reality, a party may be necessary but not indispensable. For example, if they claim an interest in the litigation, that interest may be impeded if they are not joined. That doesn't transform them into an indispensable party unless their absence threatens some other party's interest. Often, an indispensable party is any party whose rights are directly affected by disposition of the case. Many jurisdictions have rules which provide for an indispensable party to be joined, brought into the case as a party, at the discretion of the judge, this is referred to as a non-joinder of party. In some cases, the inability to join such a party means that the case must be dismissed. In the United States, this is outlined in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, Rule 19. Identifying an indispensable party. The indispensable party is often a prudential standing requirement. That is, while the parties currently involved in litigation have an actual case or controversy, judges will not proceed without the indispensable party. This avoids potential double litigation and possibly inequitable outcomes. In determining whether a party is indispensable, courts generally look to three factors. Will the missing party's interests be harmed in some direct way by the outcome of the case? Does the missing party have an interest which would cause another party to the case to be subjected to multiple obligations? Can the court provide complete relief to the plaintiff without the presence of the missing party? In patent law, for example, a patent owner is an indispensable party to a patent infringement suit brought by an exclusive licensee against an alleged infringer. The patent owner's rights would be directly affected by a finding of invalidity or unenforceability of the patent claims. At the same time, if the patent owner is not a party to the case, the alleged infringer could be sued separately by the patent owner, and could end up having to pay two judgments for the same act of infringement. Determining the feasibility of joining an indispensable party. Once it has been determined that a missing party is indispensable, the court must determine whether it is feasible to join that party to the case. In making this determination, the court will use the same analysis that it uses to determine whether it has jurisdiction over any party. First, it must determine whether it can exercise personal jurisdiction over the party. Second, it must determine whether the exercise of personal jurisdiction will affect its subject matter jurisdiction. In diversity cases, 
which are brought in federal court on the basis of all plaintiffs coming from different states as all defendants, joinder will not be deemed feasible if it destroys diversity. Where the missing party cannot be brought into the case, the court must determine whether it is possible to proceed without joining that party. If it is not possible to proceed, the case will be dismissed. In some jurisdictions, the failure to join an indispensable party does not hinder the case. For example, the Commonwealth of Virginia does not recognize the doctrine of indispensable parties, although a defendant may argue that the plaintiff has improperly failed to join a party that would conventionally be deemed indispensable, and may seek to have the court attempt to join the missing party. If it is not feasible to join the missing party then the case will simply go on without them. Impleter is a United States civil court procedural device before trial in which a defendant joins a third party into a lawsuit because that third party is liable to an original defendant. Using the vocabulary of the federal rules of civil procedure, the defendant seeks to become a third-party plaintiff by filing a third-party complaint against a third-party not presently party to the lawsuit, who thereby becomes a third-party defendant. This complaint alleges that the third party is liable for all or part of the damages that the original plaintiff may win from the original defendant. The theory is that two cases may be decided together and justice may be done more efficiently than by having two suits in a series. Otherwise, more judicial time would be used in hearing the second suit. Common bases of contingent or derivative liability by which third parties may be impleted include indemnity, subrogation, contribution, and warranty. For example, in a case where a driver rear-ended another car due to faulty brakes, and is sued by the accident victim, the driver may decide to implead the repair shop where the brakes were worked on because the driver's liability derives from the repair shop's liability for their faulty repair of the brakes. Overview. Impleader is available only to defendants, not plaintiffs, unlike the similar interpleader action. Plaintiffs may however implead when a defendant counterclaims, because the plaintiff is then the counter-defendant. While many kinds of civil procedure devices occur in the form of motion, an impleader action is technically its own lawsuit. Impleader is frequently used for indemnification, such as an insurance policy or their employer. If for example a defendant is in a car accident, and their insurance policy includes an indemnification clause, they can implead their insurance company to pay out the lawsuit. An impleaded party may turn around and sue the original defendant in turn, which is called a cross-claim. Federal Rules of Civil Procedure Impleader in the federal courts derives from Rule 14, third-party practice, of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Rule 14a, 1, the non-party must be served with the third-party complaint as well as a summons. If the original defendant intends to do this more than 14 days after serving its original answer, it must first, by motion, obtain the court's leave to do so. Rule 14a, 2, when properly served, the third-party defendant must assert any defense against the third-party plaintiff's claim under Rule 12 must assert any counterclaims against the third-party plaintiff that are compulsory under Rule 13a, may assert any counterclaim against the third-party plaintiff under Rule 13b or any cross-claim against another third-party defendant under Rule 13g, may assert against the plaintiff any defense that the third-party plaintiff has to the plaintiff's claim, and may also assert against the plaintiff any claim arising out of the transaction or occurrence that is the subject matter of the plaintiff's claim against the third-party plaintiff. Rule 14a, 3 the original plaintiff may now assert claims against the third-party defendant, as long as they arise out of the transaction or occurrence that is the subject matter of his claim against the third-party plaintiff. The third-party defendant must then assert any defense under Rule 12 and any counterclaim under Rule 13a, and may assert any counterclaim under Rule 13b or any cross-claim under Rule 13g. Rule 14a, 4, any party may move to strike the third-party claim, to sever it, or to try it separately. Rule 14a, 5, a third-party defendant may engage in third-party practice of his own. 
Rule 14a, 6, Special Rules Regarding Maritime or Admiralty Jurisdiction. Rule 14b, When a claim is asserted against a plaintiff, he may engage in third-party practice of his own. Rule 14c, Special Rules Regarding Maritime or Admiralty Jurisdiction. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Other third-party claims. In law, intervention is a procedure to allow a non-party, called intervener, also spelled intervener, to join ongoing litigation, either as a matter of right or at the discretion of the court, without the permission of the original litigants. The basic rationale for intervention is that a judgment in a particular case may affect the rights of non-parties, who ideally should have the right to be heard. United States. In the United States federal courts, intervention is governed by Rule 24 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Rule 24a governs intervention of right. A potential party, called the applicant, has the right to intervene in a case either, 1, when a federal statute explicitly confers upon the applicant an unconditional right to intervene or, 2, when the applicant claims an interest relating to the property or transaction which is the subject of the lawsuit. In the second situation, in order to be admitted as an intervener, the applicant must show that its ability to protect its interest would be impeded by disposition of the case and that its interest is not adequately represented by the current parties to the case. Rule 24b provides for permissive intervention, which is subject to the discretion of the judge hearing the case. An applicant may be permitted by the court to intervene, 1, when a federal statute confers upon the applicant a conditional right to intervene or, 2, when the applicant's claim or defense shares a common question of law or fact with the main action. Agents of the federal or state government may be permitted by the court to intervene when a party to a case relies on a federal or state statute or executive order, or any regulation promulgated thereunder for its claim or defense. In both intervention of right and permissive intervention, the applicant must make a timely application to be heard. The applicant cannot sit on its rights, it must intervene as soon as it has reason to know that its interest may be adversely affected by the outcome of the pending litigation. The applicant must serve its motion to intervene on the parties to the case and explain its reasons for intervening in the motion papers. In addition, U.S. federal law does not allow the procedure of intervention to violate the requirements of diversity jurisdiction. The court must have either diversity jurisdiction or federal question jurisdiction over the intervener's claim. Supplemental jurisdiction is not permitted for intervention claims under 28 U.S.C. Section 1367b when the original claim's federal jurisdiction was based solely on diversity and exercising supplemental jurisdiction over the intervening claim would be inconsistent with the diversity requirements of 28 U.S.C. Section 1332. However, supplemental jurisdiction is permitted when the claims are so related that they form the same case or controversy. Texas. In the courts of the state of Texas, a jurisdiction whose rules of civil procedure differ considerably from the federal rules of civil procedure, a non-party may intervene in a pending lawsuit by filing a pleading, which is typically called plea in intervention or petition in intervention without leave of the court, but any party in the pending lawsuit may object and ask for the intervention to be struck for cause. While the Texas rules of civil procedure require no judicial permission and impose no intervention deadline, common law dictates that a party may not intervene post-judgment unless the trial court first sets aside the judgment. See State v. Naylor. For the same reason, an intervener must enter the lawsuit before final judgment to have standing to bring an appeal. Canada. 
Interveners are most common in appellate proceedings but can also appear at other types of legal proceedings such as a trial. In general, it is within the discretion of the court to allow or refuse an application to intervene. There are exceptions to that, however. For example, under Subrule 61-4 of the Rules of the Supreme Court of Canada, if the court has stated a constitutional question, the Attorney General of any province or territory or of the federal government, may intervene as of right, without the need to be granted leave to intervene. Courts will tend to allow an application to intervene if the applicant will provide a different perspective on the issues before the court, without expanding those issues. Interveners are permitted in criminal matters as well as civil matters. However, courts sometimes express concern in allowing applications for intervention in criminal matters if the applicant will make arguments against the position of the accused. It sometimes is seen as unfair for the accused in a criminal matter to be required to meet arguments from sources other than the prosecution. There are several distinct reasons that someone might wish to intervene in a proceeding. If the proposed intervener is currently a litigant in a case with legal issues similar or identical to the case at hand. If the proposed intervener represents a group of people who have a direct concern in the legal issues raised in a case, for example, if the case involves deportation of a particular individual, an application for leave to intervene might be made by an interest group for the rights of refugee claimants. If the proposed intervener is concerned that the court's decision in a particular case might be so broad as to affect the proposed intervener's interests, in other words it would be an intervention to ensure that the court's ruling does not have unintended consequences. It is often said that the role of interveners is to assist the court in making a just decision on the dispute at hand. It is true that judges sometimes indicate that interveners have aided the court in reaching a decision. The use of the word assist can be seen as misleading in that it implies the intervener is acting altruistically. In general, the goal of the intervener is to influence the court in making its decision, not just to assist the court. Canadian and British courts use the term amicus curiae in a more limited sense. Generally, in Canada, an amicus curiae is someone who has been specifically commissioned by the court to provide a viewpoint which the court believes is necessary and otherwise lacking. In contrast, an intervener is someone who has applied to the court to be heard on a matter. For example, the Quebec secession reference, a case in the Supreme Court of Canada, had one amicus curiae and several interveners. United Kingdom. The Attorney General has the right to intervene in a private lawsuit if the lawsuit may affect the prerogatives of the Crown, including its relations with foreign states. Furthermore, the Attorney General may intervene with leave of the court where the suit raises any question of public policy on which the executive may have a view which it may desire to bring to the notice of the court. In the context of judicial review, an interested party is any person, other than the claimant and defendant, who is directly affected by the claim. For example, in Bell v. Tavistock, the defendant, a specialist National Health Service clinic, offered neurodrug treatment to children. The complainant, who as a teenager was subjected to treatment, in 2020 posited that due to her age she was unable to, and hence could not, give informed consent. As the specialist clinic could not represent the wider NHS, the judiciary listed the NHS as an interested party, because of its role in supervision of the clinic and because it needed judicial notification of the results, for example in case other clinics were involved with the administration of neurodrugs to children. In the event, Matt Hancock decided not to instruct the Attorney General but he had the opportunity to do so by virtue of being an interested party.